MSW Media. So, Renato, does the Manhattan DA have a strong case against Trump? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Ringappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, finally, <laughs> in kind, like I think the the writers are um, are looping back to uh, season one or two um, as the plot line now is back to the Stormy Daniels hush money payment, um, which we'll, we'll get into the details, but which will looks like will be the basis of an indictment against Trump by the Manhattan DA's office. Um, and this is just one of the many walls closing in on Trump. And we've talked about Fulton County uh, in several episodes, um, but I don't know if we've ever delved very far into uh, the Manhattan DA's office, mainly because this case seemed to be moribund for a while. Yeah, I have to say, I did not have um, Alvin Bragg in my bingo card as the first person to prosecute a former president. I mean, it really looked like for a period of time that he took himself out of the game, right? In other words, you know, he had he inherited a case that um, people within his office described as very strong. I mean, and that, by the way, is not unusual for prosecutors to think that their case is amazing and their supervisors to disagree. Um, but, you know, he decided, I think, rather whether famously or infamously, as your depends on your perspective, not to proceed with that case. And so I think a lot of people thought that, you know, they were focused on Fulton County or the Justice Department. And then suddenly it seems like out of nowhere, it looked like the Sush Money case uh, is about to be indicted. Um, I have to say um, I, I'm really um, surprised by this. And I think it raises a lot of questions. And I think some there's a lot of challenges for the Manhattan DA in this case. So. I'm a, I'm, it's a bit of a head scratcher why they, they, in my mind, why they turned down that prior case, which seems stronger to me, and are instead bringing this one. Yeah, so I've heard this case referred to as the zombie case because it was just dead and then brought back to life, <laughs> I guess, is, is the idea. Um, so the previous case you are referring to is about, uh, is a kind of a state version of um or a state prosecution on uh the tax fraud and insurance fraud issue and that wasn't going anywhere well it was about i mean it, there was a whole book published by the by uh, this guy by one of the prosecutors who resigned right and you know there there and, and in fact the case was taken up by um leticia james who's the attorney general of the state of new york as a civil case so we have a good sense mm -hmm. of the evidence and what the case looks like 
that's also a difficult case to make. Okay. Um, and you know, but nonetheless, and just for our listeners, that case is about the misrepresentation, um, the overvaluing of assets for purposes of, um, in bank loans and I think insurance liability, right? And then undervaluing it for tax liability purposes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And one thing that, that you know, and there's, there was a little more to it than that, but, you know, the gist of the case, Asha, was he's a tax cheat. And what I really yeah. like as a trial lawyer and somebody who's prosecuted cases and been on the defense side against the government in criminal trials, what I like about that case is it sort of, con- it goes with, confirms what the jury already thinks about Trump. In other words, Whatever random group of people you're going to find in New York, most of them are not going to find it hard to believe that some billionaire is cheating on his taxes. Okay, that that is going to sort of be their well call or prior coming in. They're going to presume that that's true. But you know this whole hush money thing, like I think it's going to confuse a lot of jurors. Are going to be like, why is this even a crime? There's this whole argument that like it wasn't because this has got to be a campaign contribution, which we'll get to. We can talk in more detail in a minute, but it doesn't it doesn't fit that as well um, in terms of I think there's a lot of things where the average person in Manhattan who's on a jury is going to be like, you know, what's up with this case? And I think you know, so that makes it a lot weaker. And I think it, it draws a lot of questions. I think there's a lot of questionable decisions that have been made by Bragg. And, and this is the latest in the line. Yeah, so. This is about the payments that were made to Stormy Daniels, who claims that Trump had an affair with her before he ran for president. I mean, a long time ago, I think. Hold on. Affair is a fancy word. I mean, was it really an affair or was it like a series of hookups? I don't even know, right? Okay. Because <laughs> I, right? I, is the reason <laughs> I actually think, well, I'm going to say I'm, I'm using, I'm making the point because Trump's lawyer keeps saying he didn't have an affair, and I actually wonder, I Asha, if like part of his argument is like, well, they didn't have it's an like, affair. It depends on what the meeting of is. is. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. 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 Like we didn't have yeah. an affair. Okay. They just like slept together a couple times. Like I don't know. Right. Right. Okay. So okay. So um. He had liaisons with uh, Stormy Daniels, <laughs> sexual liaisons, um, and uh, in I, I'm not sure exactly what precipitated it, if she was going to talk before the election or sell her story or something, but essentially, uh, Donald Trump, allegedly, via Michael Cohen, uh, paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 for her to remain silent and had her sign an NDA. And this was um, uh, formalized in a contract, which was signed by the two of them, uh, signed by one, what was it, David Davidson? Well, you have have a good memory. She got appointed like a kind of a, a, a questionable lawyer who wasn't necessarily looking out for her interests, right? Yes. And well, I remember this because I was actually in the green room ready to talk about the Mueller investigation and the Booker, uh, this is on Anderson Cooper, and um, the Bookers ran in with like this, you know, whatever, 20 page contract. And, you know, there was this breaking news, like literally it had just broken 
nobody knew about Stormy Daniels. And they're like, can you talk about this? So I just looked at it and, you know, I was like, I guess I'm going back to first year contracts, you know, <laughs> and meeting of the minds. And, you know, is is this a valid contract, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember that very well because I remember it being not signed by Donald Trump and, um, mm -hmm. you know, that potentially having issues and stuff. Uh, in any case, the the issue here is that um, Michael Cohen paid provided the payments to Stormy Daniels, and he was reimbursed by the Trump Organization um, in a series of uh, installments, which were categorized in their books as legal expenses, um, even though these were not for actual legal services that Cohen had provided. It was clearly um, a reimbursement for these payments. And the checks that were provided to Michael Cohen were signed by Donald Trump himself. I mean, this wasn't a case where, you know, Alan Weisselberg was, you know, taking care of this. It looks like uh, th these were signed directly by Trump. And there's also an audio tape that Michael Cohen has, which, you know, they discuss the Stormy Daniels payment. And all of this came to light because Michael Cohen was prosecuted uh, as a part of this campaign finance violation um, by the Southern District um, when he was swept up in the Mueller investigation. And in that indictment, there's a reference to individual one. Um, and that individual one is clearly Donald Trump. And Michael Cohen, in his plea to the court, said that he was directed to make these payments by Donald Trump. And so there was a, for a long time a question of whether would the Southern District move forward on also prosecuting individual one, aka Donald Trump, and that never went anywhere. And again, in this zombie case, this has now uh, been rebirthed as a state case. Yes. Wow. That's, that's amazing background and amazing memory uh, of all of the detail. What I will say a couple things uh, that I think are important uh, to note there. So first of all, one thing that I'll note is that, you know, Cohen's sort of famous statement, infamous statement about Trump in court saying that he was direct, he did it at the direction and, you know, Donald Trump, that was, I think, ad-libbed. It was not something that prosecutors had put on the script for him to say. So that's the first oh. first thing, because it was certainly not listed in the in the plea agreement. You know, there have been a lot of revelations because Jeff Berman, who was U.S. attorney during that time, has wrote his own book. Um, and, you know, even the, the term individual one was something that within the DOJ, there was a lot of discussion of how to label Trump at that point. And there was definitely a lot of pressure. And I mean, I do think uh, my understanding is um, Senator Durbin and others in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee are conducting oversight of this. But there have been there was definitely pressure that was put on the Southern District not to indict Trump or not, you know, to close that investigation. And so, you know, it, it, I do think there's more to the story potentially of why Trump was in charge. But I will say this, you know, at the time, people were like, well, Cohen's charged, so definitely Trump will. And I, I even I said at the time that I thought, you know, charging Trump would be much harder because Cohen, just so every so so our all everyone is listening, understands you know, if somebody, you know, they already had Cohen on other crimes. Cohen had this whole tax thing going and pro tax problem with his medallion, you know, taxi medallions. And he was essentially pleading guilty to this, really pleading guilty to everything to get uh, 
better deal at sentencing or better result at sentencing. It's it's very different when you're a prosecutor and the defendant is pleading guilty in rather, you know, versus a situation where the defendant has, you know, lawyers and are going to fight this to the bitter end or going to go to trial. If you know the person's pleading guilty, the question is just, hey, do we are we confident that this guy actually did it? And do we have sufficient evidence to kind of meet, you know, what we need to meet at the at the sentencing, you know, kind of satisfy the judge? But a trial, of a contested trial, you know, particularly in a case like Trump's, is a very different story. And also, you know, Trump wouldn't be, unlike Cohen, testifying about his state of mind. He would be contesting it. So, you know, always going to be a difficult case. Here, it's a little bit a little bit different. Another kind of added complexity is, you know, as you mentioned, Asha, it's a state crime. So it's a bit of a different crime and you know, different things you have to prove and so on as well. Very interesting. Yeah. And let's talk about the state crime, because I think this is where it gets a little complicated. Yes. Um, and I think it's it's worth kind of unpacking what what is happening here. So and, and you can correct me if if I'm incorrect on any of these points. So right now, it appears that what the charge against Trump would be would be a misdemeanor offense of falsifying a business record um, under New York state law. However, that misdemeanor can be bumped up to a felony if the falsification involves an underlying crime. Um, and here, the idea is that the falsification of business records, basically the putting the listing of these payments to Michael Cohen as um, you know, uh payments for legal services rendered when they weren't and they were it was actually um a reimbursement, uh was in furtherance of a crime. We're not really I'm not really clear whether this is a state or federal crime, but the crime is the elect is a, a violation of campaign finance laws under either state or federal law. And because the payments involved that, that could that would then bump up this misdemeanor offense to a felony. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially right. I mean, we don't know yet what the underlying second crime would be. I mean, we've gotten a lot of reporting in the falsification of business records, I think is a fairly obvious uh, charge. But like you said, Ash, it's a misdemeanor. So the question is, what's the second crime? And at least the New York Times reporting was, it's an election law crime, which makes this like the Cohen case, in the sense that you essentially, it's like, um, it, it, it's 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 like this kind of I wouldn't say unprecedented because you have the John Edwards case, but this argument that this hush money payment, which was made in the final days of the 2016 election, was in fact a campaign expenditure, an independent uh, campaign contribution or uh, you know unlawful campaign contribution to or unreported to the Trump campaign, and I think that's that adds a lot of complexity. You know, I mentioned the John Edwards case. That's the only case that. Uh, ever brought uh that was ever brought based on that kind of theory and john edwards walked he was found not guilty and the reason why is that the jury believed that um and i think there's a good argument here that there was a lot of reasons why he did not want the world to know about his you know his affair with i think it was real hunter was i think her name uh, if i remember my memory serves me correctly real something or another but in any event you know, he didn't want to hurt his, his wife had cancer. He did not want to hurt her and he didn't want to embarrass himself um, and, you know, so on and so forth. 
And so, you know, I, I think, you know, that that would be the strongest defense for Trump here. Of course, what we've seen thus far from the Trump camp uh, not is not that defense. And there are, you know, r- you know, reportings or rumors from the Trump camp that, that he's not willing to, to take that tack. But it definitely, I think, opens up some very significant defenses to to uh, the Trump team. Yeah. And it's worth just noting what why this is. Um, at least plausibly, an illegal co- campaign finance uh, contribution, which is an in-kind contribution. Um, well, I guess, yeah, in right? Like, because the in-kind part would be her silence, I guess, or something? Or is it the money? I'm not really sure. But the money, because the money is being used for campaign purpose. That's the idea, the 130K. Right. And, the, I, the, and you know, the reason that we have campaign disclosure, campaign finance disclosure laws is to ensure that voters are aware of what kind of influences are coming in for the candidate and then can take that into account in um, making their informed choice on who to vote for. So this is the disclosure requirements are really about transparency, right? And uh, giving voters as much information. And so the idea here is that Trump, by being able to conceal this from voters, got was benefited by it because ostensibly if people knew if this had come out like it could have um you know i guess it would have potentially been to his detriment so by concealing it he has he gets a benefit from it and that's sort of the theory of it being a campaign finance violation i will say though renato um michael cohen was convicted at this was as a campaign finance violation right and I understand what you're saying, that he was pleading to it, but I'm just saying, like, they did, that was how this was characterized. Absolutely. He was charged with that, and that was, yeah. that was, but it was a slightly different, it was a different statute. Obviously, it's a federal statute, but the same theory. Yes, absolutely. And at the time, you know, it was ag- it was aggressive. Not the only time uh, in history that the Southern District uh, of New York has taken a very aggressive legal position. But like I said, it's a lot easier to do when the other side's laying down. So here's my question about the Alvin Bragg approach. Does he need to, what does he need to prove? Like, in other words, does he need to prove the underlying crime also, like beyond a reasonable doubt, each element? Or does he need to demonstrate just that the elements were present of an underlying crime, but only prove the falsification piece to a jury. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I'm confused on that. He has to. If there's anything that enhances the sentence, he has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So he has to prove the underlying crime too. So why not just charge the underlying crime? Yeah, he, he may. I don't, I mean, that that's a good question. He may, he may charge the underlying crime as well. That I'm not sure about. I will just say that all of this is, I'm, I wouldn't say weak, but it's, it's not, it's not the sort of case you would usually charge. It's, it's a, it's a bit of, it's it's complicated to you know we could say it that way but it's also it's a questionable case to charge and i think he might be better off with the falsification of records because that's closer to trump i mean in other words if the crime is the um campaign finance maybe trump knew something about that maybe not i mean one of the biggest problems for trump on the campaign finance side federally was going to be he didn't knowingly and willfully violate the campaign finance laws because you know he he would have a good argument that he had no idea that this would be regarded as campaign finance violation so would cohen by the way but trump's might might have been better because he wasn't a lawyer um but it but you know here the all that 
that goes away if somebody else committed the crime. I mean, if if I were a prosecutor, I would say, well, in that case, why all the secrecy and um, attempt to conceal, right? Like, if I really didn't believe that this was a, a campaign finance violation, I would have just written a check to Stormy Daniels and just given it to her. Like, it, why, you know, all the subterfuge and pretending these are legal services, like there's an attempt to conceal the payments, um, which goes beyond, like, Melania is not going to be looking at the business records. Like, it's not like she's going to be like, what are the, what is this hundred thousand, thirty thousand? Like, she's not, she's off shopping. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I would say that the secrecy and concealment um, undercuts that defense. That, that is their best evidence, by the way, Asha. You, Asha is you've come up with um, off the cuff. You've come up with the best argument that the Manhattan DA's come up with, at least based on reporting, which is essentially. Melania is not looking through the business records of Trump organization, which I think is a good argument. <clears throat> the counter argument would be that um, this is a, it's embarrassing to have to hook up with some playboy um, model. I think she was. And when you're married and to have this uh, come out and to have to pay her one hundred thirty thousand dollars to keep it silent. And it's something that most people wouldn't want the world to know. And so you want to do everything possible to hide that fact would be what his lawyers are going to say. Um, I think what what focusing on the books and re- the books and records, the falsification of business records does, it makes it easier for the Manhattan D.A. because they can have Michael Cohen come in and, and he can say he was violating campaign finance laws and he pled guilty to that. And that's what he was doing. And Trump, by getting the falsifying the business records, was just essentially aiding the Cohen crime. And they don't have to. They, you, the jury, it's it's less of a um, it's it's less of a heavy lift uh, regarding you know trying to prove up that Trump committed the underlying crime. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good point. I'll just say I think you know because we talk about this sometimes in terms of what's the what's the easiest case for a prosecutor to prove, and then sort of the 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 lead, that's a legal question, and then sort of the policy or moral question, which is what is the harm that's being vindicated, right? Um, we've talked about this, you and I, I think personally, I'm not sure if we've talked about it on this podcast with regard mm-hmm. to the January 6th yeah. um, crimes that, you know, there's certain crimes like obstructing a official proceeding, whereas, you know, I'm very pro um, prosecuting for uh, incitement to insurrection because that's like what we saw happen. And that was really the the crime, you know, that we, we want vindicate. I mean, not that the other ones aren't, but it's like, um, there's something so reprehensible about that particular thing. And I think that, um, the legal case, notwithstanding, it does make sense to me to create a theory that addresses the campaign finance aspect of this, because that's really the harm, right? It was, um, an attempt to, dupe the public or to prevent them from knowing a material fact that could have um, impacted their vote. We don't know if it would have or not, but also because it fits into a broader pattern of him cheating in elections, right? Going back to, you know, Russia, are you listening to the Ukraine quid pro quo to uh, obstructing an official proceeding and trying to prevent the certification on January 6th? I think that in many ways it's... um, appropriate for the conduct that you are trying to punish um, as a moral and kind of policy matter. Yeah, I think that that consideration is also something that prosecutors think about the way that 
you, we would think about as prosecutors usually is does this charge fit the conduct? In other words, there's often six different ways you could charge something. And one of the questions, there's a number of questions that are asked, um, uh, you know, regarding, you know, largely regarding, you know, proof and how it's going to play out a trial and so on. But one of those questions is, does this capture the, the conduct well? And I think that's really what part of what you're getting at there. I will say that prosecutors, just to give some context to everybody listening, prosecutors are often a little bit less concerned about that than the rest of us are because they know at sentencing they can present all sorts of other facts to the judge and the judge can take that into account. That's particularly the case in federal. I, I don't know I'm because I don't practice in state court in New York myself. Um, I don't know whether that's different in New York, but generally federal uh, in the federal system, you can the judge can actually sentence even based on things the person was acquitted on. So you, the jury could find, find the defendant not guilty on a couple of counts, and the judge could consider it anyway. And so, really, get, just getting to the sentencing is what is the important thing for a lot of prosecutors. Yeah. Um, I will I I will say Asha before we wrap this this up. One thing I will say is you know one qu- thing I've heard from people is you know, this isn't the ideal first case. This isn't the ideal first prosecutor. If you're going to bring charges against Trump, Trump might face multiple indictments. Why would you want this one to be first? And I'll just say to everyone that like the aware system works, prosecutors don't get to choose who goes first. There's all these different sovereigns out there and different units of government and they make their own decisions. And, you know, in the R. Kelly case, I thought one of the weaker cases went first uh, in the Eastern District of New York. He got convicted anyway, but a lot of people behind the scenes, a lot of prosecutors were like, um, and defense attorneys were raising their eyebrows, like, why did the Eastern District of New York rush to bring a weak case uh, ahead of these other uh, units uh, of government? And I think, you know, I think, you know, the same could be levied here. Um, but ultimately, you know, another thing I hear from listeners sometimes is like, people, prosecutors need to be, quote, brave unquote and aggressive you know this is not um this is not like um a lion king uh or something like that it's not about like courage in in battle against other animals or something this is actually like bringing charges against somebody who has constitutional rights and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out i will say if bragg ultimately brings a case that doesn't prove out um you know, there'll be a lot of questions about it after. And one more thing before we wrap up, I had a question. Um, Trump's latest lawyer, someone I've literally never seen before in my life, um, was on Fox and claiming that uh, this, that really the, the real victim here is Trump and that he was, <laughs> that he was being extorted. Um, so I'm I'm just curious your your take on uh, that as a potential defense. By the way, it, it does seem like if he's claiming extortion, he's admitting to sleeping with her. Well, according to the lawyer, he did it. I mean, that's why the whole thing. I think I said on Twitter, like it's a bold move, Cotton. Right, let's yeah. uh, let's see how it works out for him. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, the whole thing was absurd because you know I, I don't really think there's a huge question in people's mind that Trump slept with Stormy Daniels. I mean, maybe amongst his followers or something. I, I don't know, but you know th- that that doesn't seem like the strong point. In fact, if I was representing Trump, which I'm not, you know, uh, but if I was or I was a defense team, that would be part of the thing you just admit up front, like sure, you know. So he slept with Stormy Daniels, but let's get to all the, the legal part, right? And so that that was bizarre, but no, it's not going to help him at all because it's factually untrue, right? In other words, Stormy Daniels 
did not come to Trump and say, look, unless you pay me X amount of dollars, I'm going to do this. Um, that, that very well could be extortion. But what happened was actually she went to the National Enquirer, had nothing to do, that had not, never approached Trump or his team at all. The Enquirer brought in Trump and they're like, oh, my goodness, let's we, we are so close to you and are so favorable to you. We want to save you from this. So we will get you inserted into this and intervene to help you and give you aid that, frankly, we should not have done. And if, if people may recall, the National Enquirer itself, the company that owns them, had its own non-prosecution agreement with the Southern District of New York in which they admitted right. to campaign finance violations as well. By the way, that's another like easy one. You know, prosecutors can it's easy to get anyone to agree to a non-prosecution agreement if you're a prosecutor because that's what you want, right? Um, so we'll agree to whatever. And and they had and, and because they had also done a catch and kill on another person that um Trump had slept with McDougal. Yeah, or was that somebody else? Was that like some RNC was guy um, who slept with him or with her? I don't recall, but there was definitely another case. No, it was him. Okay, I don't even know. So I, I, I remember because didn't she have a lawsuit against some other guy? Uh, it was like an RNC chair or She big may time? have, but okay. the, it was another person. I forget her first name, um, a Playboy model. And he and she, she, I think that one, National Enquirer, directly bought her story and killed it after promising her you know they were gonna like make her a star or whatever and then killed it wow okay i, I you remember you remember this stuff better than i do ashley you know I, what can i say yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well we'll see what happens yeah. uh you have to go back and watch season one to really catch up on you know all the details indeed Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Renato, um, we've seen this collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And I know that you are in the weeds of um, these types of regulations and kind of uh, what what would have precipitated this? And I'm wondering if you can break it down. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a big deal. A lot of folks hadn't heard about uh, about uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but it was actually one of the larger banks in the United States. Like, it's about the size of American Express, which you have heard about. Oh. <laughs> Very significant. I mean, it was a, like, I think, you know, in the top 15 or 20 banks, largest banks in the United States. Yeah, it was in the top 20. <clears throat> yeah, very significant in terms of size. And the reason you haven't heard of it is because it mostly lent to other businesses. It was lending to startups in Silicon Valley. So it was an important part of that ecosystem, that culture. You know, after the, you know, apparent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, there was actually like a whole slew of significant Silicon Valley companies that published a statement saying like, you know, if you can, if it can be saved, we'll keep doing business with them and stuff. It definitely was a big part of that community, which is a significant financial center in the United States. So that's why you maybe haven't heard of it before, but it was significant. So so what happened? You know, here's an interesting one. You know, a lot of times there was a bank earlier this year 
that failed because of a bet on crypto, which like everyone listening, like, well, of course, you know, you know, betting the bank's assets on crypto. But actually, what Silicon Valley Bank did was exact kind of the opposite. Because when there are uh, deposits that you put in the bank, the bank is holding this money for you. And in order to give you interest on that and, you know, to be able to continue. They lend it out. They not only lend it out, but they do other things with your money. They invest Mm -hmm. your money uh, and that, you know, to get a better return. Well, you know, sometimes banks get into trouble when they lend too much or they take too much of risks. Here, what they did is something that all a lot of you listening would think is like super prudent, which is to buy lots of long-term treasuries. Um, yeah, yeah, and so exactly. So that's the safest investment possible are like treasury bonds and so forth, where you are going to get a guaranteed return backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. So unless the U.S. government collapses, you're good. Um, and so what's the problem? Well, they locked in very, very low interest rates over a long period of time. And interest rates have gone up and up and up. So all their competitors were making, let's say, 8% and they were making 1 point something percent. And so they were having trouble and they weren't performing well. Now, you might say, well, well, so what? They've still got their money. So for most of us, right, we put our money into a bank account. If we make a percent or two, that's okay. Like, you know, at least you didn't lose your money. You didn't bet it all and lose. But what happened there was Silicon Valley Bank, and this is something that I think hooks into things we've talked about in the past, Asha. Silicon Valley Bank put out a statement. So if you you have to, what what happened was they had all these this money tied up in bonds. They decided to have a stock sale to raise money. To yeah, to help their accounts. I remember this, and this is where basically all of the people who had deposits there were like, "All right, we're going to get our money out now. They're they're not in good shape," and there was a run on the bank. Yeah, there you go. You're cutting to the you're 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 rooting my punchline, but yes, Sorry. exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, you're already skipping ahead, but yes. So there was. So what happened was. So just so everyone understands why you raise money by selling stock. When you sell stock, you're selling a piece of the company. And so if you know me and you have a company we own fifty fifty, and we we can issue shares and dilute ourselves down to forty percent each, and twenty percent can be owned by the people who own the shares, and we're selling them for something for money and that we can take that money and put it into the business. And that is a way of raising money. That's what Silicon Valley bank was doing. So before you sell stock, you have to put out um, an announcement. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple things about that. I mean, how much time you have to give before the sale in terms of your announcement depends on the type of stock. They could have sold preferred stock and given very little notice. They didn't. They gave, they sold stock that would require a few days notice and the announcement they put out was like super technical and very hard to understand. It was lots and lots of technical jargon without at the very top, like a very simple to the point, common sense explanation of what was going on. Like, hey, we still got lots of money, but it's tied but up to treasury. We're doing okay. We're, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so what happened was these this gobbledygook numbers and, you know, th- that made it seem like there was distress were getting circulated and their clientele are all sophisticated business types in Silicon Valley who think that they know numbers just by looking at an announcement. And they're all online. And there is a very quick cascade effect through social media and so on. And so what was happening was all there, they suddenly there was a run. Peter Thiel, Thiel, who actually I think he was a Trump supporter, right? A big Silicon Valley figure 
Um, one of the founders, I believe, of PayPal, if I recall correctly, or PayPal or eBay or something like that, but very significant founder of a, a Silicon Valley startup, um, was encouraging everyone involved in his VC firm to get their money out. Other VCs started following suit and in- encouraging their their um, their clients to do the same. And it just started, like you said, Ash, a run on the bank, which is super unfortunate because usually runs on the bank, so to speak, are very um, irrational. It's like people yeah. being afraid that their money isn't going to get out. So ultimately, that led to, I think, an otherwise avoidable uh, problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Like this wasn't the sort of crazy case where they were betting on, you know, every complex mortgage instruments or something. It was actually a fairly, you know, straightforward problem that led to, um, you know, a very unfortunate end. So then why, like I'm watching the news coverage and they're talking about um, rollbacks of regulations and the fact that there wasn't uh, a um, person on the board overseeing risk, like why is there blame being placed on like, cause what you're saying is this was a poorly handled situation, not a lack of regulation and oversight, or is it both? Well, it's both. I mean, look, deciding to tie up a massive amount of banks assets in long-term treasuries, not necessarily the best way of managing a lot of money. I mean, I, I think, the results speak for themselves. Other banks were making more money. It was a concern. You know, you know, I use the example, I was drawing the analogy to our own retirements. You know, most people who are getting close to retirement are happy to not lose their money, but that's not how large banks are supposed to operate. Okay. They're in very competitive atmosphere and they're supposed to be making money and they have options that we don't have to make lots of money. So not the best use of money. They, they didn't manage risk well, and they did have people who were doing that. Um, uh, despite Fox News trying to make this all about, you know, I'll, I'll, their take on it is a diversity and inclusion brought down the uh, yeah. Silicon Valley Bank, right? Um, but, but I, I think there was, there, there was, you know, there were some, you know, uh, Trump. There was a Trump era rollback of of reporting requirements, which was, I think, kind of a different part of the story of why this may have occurred. I'm not really sure whether that is, in fact, why this happened either. But I think it's fair to say that banks want less regulation of themselves and that ultimately one thing that comes into play is that there's, um, I would say, an understanding that uh, over time that a lot of these banks get bailed out. Now, I will note, you know, the deposit. So the depositors in this bank are getting made whole, however, and the Signature Bank, which is another bank that collapsed, are being made whole. However, the shareholders um, and directors and all of them are not. So the shareholders are losing all of their money, which is the way it should be in a circumstance where you have a mismanaged company. Um, but second of all, the money is getting paid not by taxpayers directly, but by this fund that banks, since the 2008 class, banks are required to pay into for situations like this. Now, obviously, um, you know what ha- what happens is you know banks obviously – uh, make that money back and fees to all of us, right? It's not, you know, that's, you don't have free checking or whatever it might be because, you know, you're paying some fee to your bank. But nonetheless, um, you know, that was part of the system. And they're selling, and they're trying to sell the assets of the bank to a, a buyer. I don't know who, who buys this stuff, but like a buyer. And then that yes. those proceeds would also make depositors who are not 
insured because people are insured by the FDIC up to $250,000, but presumably there's a lot of people who had deposits greater than that. Um, and so those are the people who need to be made whole. Yeah, I will, I will say that's one thing that people could look at. So the FDIC insurance was created in response to the bank runs of the 1930s where people were going to the bank, you know, lining up outside the bank because your deposits weren't insured at all. Um, but, you know, that, that limit has not gone up in quite some time and $200,000 isn't what it used to be. So a lot of companies actually, Asha, it just they have accounts at another bank just in case with X number of mul- X multiplier of payroll mm. at a second bank so that this way, a- 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 if if their first bank, if their main bank collapses, they have another bank that they can use to withdraw money and keep the company running. A lot of companies do that, but you know, that's sort of inefficient. And, you know, every time you're doing business with more banks, it just creates a lot of administrative complications. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's something that I do think we should look at. Um, but I do think it's also fair to say that, you know, while uh, I don't think anyone, well, I should say, and I'm sure there are people against it, but I do think that most people would be for ensuring that depositors get their money back. I do think that there's an argument that there are other disasters and other groups of people out there that also deserve attention and maybe aren't getting as swift of action as the SVP folks are getting. So Asha, you got a Navy sweatshirt on. I, I do not picture you as a, as a sailor. So what's up with that? Well, I got this at um, in Annapolis last fall when I went back, when I went there uh, to the Naval Academy for my boyfriend's, 30th reunion um so he's a grad um he's a marine uh i i I can't say former marine because apparently there's no such thing as a former marine Uh, (laughs) uh, so so that's when i got this and um actually my son just got into a summer program at the naval academy so i pulled this out this morning um so he's he's interested in in the service academies and uh, I encouraged him to go and do, uh, they offer these summer programs before your senior year. So you can get an idea of what life is like. Do you think that's going to happen? I mean, do you think he's going to go and, and, and to go to a service academy? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, he, he seems very interested. So he got interested, uh, initially in, West Point because he's in the Boy Scouts and they do um, a camp out once a year at West Point. And I think, you know, he at the time he was like 13. I think it was like the first college campus that he had really like seen. And they took a tour of it and he was like, this is so cool. Um, sure. And his dad went to the Air Force Academy. Um, my boyfriend went mm. to the Naval Academy. So he's kind of surround, you know, he's, he's had these in his life. And I think, um, what I've encouraged him to do is is to really get a sense of, I mean, when I look at his room, I'm like, I don't know if you're going to make it through a service academy because, you know, um, you can't keep your room like this. But on the other hand, um, you know, he's... Does he listen to this podcast? Is that like a message to him, Asha? Are you like... <laughs> Selling this is this is this what you're, you're trying to get a message across to yourself? Maybe, maybe. But on the other hand, um, I think I do think that there are elements of it in which he would thrive. Um, and you know, as someone who 
did uh, law school admissions for 12 years. You know, I was the dean of admissions at Yale Law School. So I got to see uh, transcripts from um, basically all colleges and universities and across the United States. And I have a sense of the kinds of students that come from them. Um, you know, the academies just, they produce very, very solid people. <laughs> um, you know, it's a solid education. It's very heavy uh, on, you know, science and math, not surprisingly. Um, sure. And I think they build a lot of ca character and resilience. So, um, and, you know, he's been in the scouts and he, he likes, he seems to really thrive in that environment. So um, yeah, if he can, if he can learn to, you know, do make his corners on his bed and keep his room tidy. I think, I think he can, uh, it might be a great place for him. Not, not another not so subtle hint. So, okay. I got to ask before we go, do you have a type Asha? Is this like a thing where you, you, cause your son's dad is an air force guy. You're with a Naval, uh, grad and a Marine. Is that like a thing for you? Military guys? Um, I don't think so. I think actually like, they might be the only two military people. Oh, they've been the longest lasting, so maybe that that tells you something. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. Mm. Jury's out. We're gonna have to get delve into your psychology more in future episodes. Okay. <laughs> M S W Media. <laughs>